Thank you for tuning in to Living Life with Purpose, a ministry of Florida Bible Church in Miramar, Florida. At Florida Bible, we believe that life is preparation for eternity and hope this message will be an encouragement and blessing to you. More information about Florida Bible can be found at www.floridabible.org. Our Redeemer lives. And that's why we come and not just go through an exercise. We come in here in anticipation that God is going to make a difference and that God is going to speak to us because he's not some God of stone or brass. He's a living God, and he speaks to us every day, and he's going to speak to us right now. Well, let me ask you a question. How many of you love history? All right, you love history. How many of you hate history? All right, y'all can put your offering in the offering thing and then go ahead home now. No. You know, there's an attitude that is growing more pervasive in our world today, and that's this attitude of, it's no big deal. That's no big deal. Yeah, smoke a little wine, it's no big deal. Everybody does it. The divorce rate climbs higher and higher and higher, and it's got to be a thing. Well, it's no big deal. It's sad, yeah, but it happens. It's no big deal. You know, couples are not even marrying now. They're, they're, they're increasingly living together outside of, of being married. And, and, and society says, it's no big deal. And, and more and more people are saying, it's no big deal. You know, people who can afford to pay their mortgages and, and get in this upside-down kind of situation where so many people are, you know, just going into the bank and throwing the keys and saying, yeah, I can afford my mortgage, but it's your problem. You deal with it. It's no big deal. Everybody's doing it. You know, we, we allow all these different cultural influences in our home through our TV and, and music and all that. And we're saying, yeah, I know I'm kind of skirting the gray area here a little bit, but it's no big deal. It's no big deal. Remember a quote I shared with you a little while back from a guy named Elihu Burritt? said, no human being can come into this world without increasing or diminishing the sum total of human happiness. Not only of the present, but of every subsequent age of humanity. He says, no one can detach himself from this connection. There is no sequestered spot in the universe, no dark niche along the disk of non-existence to which he can retreat from his relations with others, where he can withdraw the influence of his existence upon the moral destiny of the world. In other words, what he's saying is that the decisions that we make just don't have impact in the now. In our little circle of influence. He's saying that the decisions that we make can impact generations to come. They can actually impact the ultimate moral destiny of the entire world. Now I want to illustrate that in possibly the most dramatic story of all time. You know, the 20th century has been characterized by three major events. World War I, World War II, and the Cold War. All the technological advances primarily came from one of these three episodes. Many of the advances in medicine came as a result of these episodes. Many of the advances in in all kinds of, of different avenues of human existence were greatly impacted during the 20th century by these three influences. Now let me ask you, now that we're a decade into the 21st century, what do you think has been that which has characterized the 21st century, the beginning of it, more than anything else? Well, in my opinion, it's the spread of Islam, and especially the spread of the radical elements of Islam that are mounting all these terrorist attacks around the world. 
And it's not something that just kind of happened around 9-11 or that. It's still happening today. Last weekend, we were dealing with, with a church burning a Koran and the international response to that. And we're, we're, we're hearing all the time about this mosque at, around ground zero. And, and this, is, this is what is consuming us. And this is what is consuming the planning of, of our military and of our law enforcement agencies. And this is huge in our world today. But what if I could tell you that the root of all of this that we're dealing with in our lives today, the foundation of how it got to be this bad, can be traced back to one family and its dysfunction and the poor decisions of the leaders of this one family. Let me tell you the story this morning. It all starts in the book of Genesis. When one of the offspring ultimately of Shem, one of the sons of Noah, comes to the forefront. And the Bible says in Genesis chapter 12 verse 1 that God appeared to him and said, The Lord has said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed because of you. Now this is God and he appears to Abram and God is beginning to work the ultimate plan to bring Messiah into the world. That's what this is all about. It's not just that he liked this one guy better than anybody else in the world. He chooses this one man because of his dedication to God. And he's preparing to send Messiah into the world so that Messiah could die on the cross and, and the offering for the forgiveness of sins could be extended to every human being. Now, what he does is he establishes a covenant of divine blessing. He says, I'm going to bless your nation. You are now my people. He also declares that they are going to have preeminence among all nations. I'm going to bless the nations that cooperate and bless you. And I'm going to curse the nations that attack you. Now, a little while later, he goes on to expound this promise. In Genesis 15, he says, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates. So in addition to a divine blessing, in addition to the promise of preeminence among the other nations of the earth, he also offers them a promised geographical inheritance. Now, I cannot believe how Abram might have responded to this. But Abram obeyed God. He's living at this time in the Ur of the Chaldees, which is modern day Iraq. And the Bible says immediately Abraham believed God and he left and took off and, and did what God said in order to inherit this great promise and this covenant that God has established. But not long into the experience, Abraham begins to be impatient. And he says to God, he says, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. He says, God, I, I hear what you're saying, but I mean, it's been some time now. I'm not a young man anymore. I'm getting up there in age. I don't have any kids. So in fact, if I died right now, all this promise that you're promising me and everything that you've blessed me with, I've got to pass on to one of my servants. Now God immediately comforts us and says, don't worry about that. I am still going to bless you and give you offspring from you. Now at the same time, his wife Sarah is getting impatient because she doesn't have any children. And she concludes that God has not allowed her womb to open and she can't have children. So she comes up with a plan in Genesis 16. Abram's wife had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. She's thinking, you know, no big deal. 
I know he really doesn't love her. He loves me. But we don't have any kids, and so we don't have any to pass all this on to. We, we got to do something here. So in an unprecedented event in the history of mankind, a wife comes and makes this kind of, uh, this kind of proposition to her husband. Can you imagine Abram's response? Now, now let me get this straight. You actually want me to sleep with the maid. That's right. Is this a trick? Well, right away, Abram buys in. He says, sounds good to me. And so, he sleeps with Hagar, and she becomes pregnant. No big deal. It was consensual. I mean, there wasn't any crime committed. It wasn't cheating. My wife was her idea. No big deal. Well, almost immediately, this plan begins to unravel. Because Hagar becomes pregnant, she's showing, and she's walking around the house, and every time Hagar passes Sarah, she gets more jealous and more jealous because she's able to bear a son, and, 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 and Sarah's not able to conceive a child. And so Sarah begins to treat Hagar terribly, viciously, aggressively, to the point where Hagar is, is so depressed and so filled with, with frustration that she runs away. And she's crying in her agony when God reaches out to her. And it says in Genesis 16:11, the angel of the Lord said to her, You are now with child, and you will have a son. You shall name him Ishmael. Now file that name away for future use. You will have a son, and you're going to name him Ishmael. And then God says, now you go back to Abraham and you go back to Sarah and know that I'm going to be with you. I'm going to help you through this situation. Well, that's exactly what she does. But in not too long, things start getting more complicated because about nine, ten years later, God fulfills his promise to Abram and Sarah. And even though Abram's now a hundred years old and Sarah's about, eight, about 90 years old, she conceives and gives birth to a son who they name Isaac. Now, there's great jubilation. Sarah's excited. Abram's excited. But on the day of the ceremony of the weaning of Isaac, and this was a great ceremony in this culture, here's what happened. Ishmael, who's now 9, 10, 11 years old, does what older brothers tend to do to younger brothers. And what do they do? They pick on them, don't they? Any of you who have children know they like to pick on each other. So on this very uh, ceremonial day of rejoicing in the family, Ishmael's picking on his brother. And Sarah doesn't like it. In fact, Sarah goes to Abram and says, Get rid of that slave woman and her son. For that slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance, not an inheritance, that he's not going to have part of our will, we're going to cut him out. It says, he'll never share in the inheritance. What inheritance? The covenant of God, the divine blessing, the preeminence among other nations, the geographical land. There's no way that slave's son is going to share that with our son. The whole thing was originally her idea, by the way. Well, Abram thinks, and he's, he's really... Not comfortable with this, by the way, the scripture says. But he's rationalizing, if I'm going to keep peace in my house, i got to make mama happy, because when mama's not happy, nobody's happy. So, it's no big deal. 
Just one slave woman and her son among all the people of the earth. So the next day, he gives her a canteen of water and a couple Lunchables. <laughs> and he says, Hagar, I'm really sorry that this worked out this way. But you got to go. You, you women can't get along. The kids don't get along. And i got to keep peace in the house. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Here, take this water and food and, and just leave. And so he releases them to where? The desert of Beersheba with a canteen and a couple Lunchables. Well, obviously, it's not going to last very long as she's wandering around the desert. And ultimately, the water runs out and the food runs out. And so she's about to die. And she knows the child's about to die. And she can't stand the, the thought of, of Ishmael dying. So she puts him in a shaded place. And, and she goes, the Bible says, to a bow's distance away. That was as far as an archer could shoot an arrow. Because she doesn't want to be there to hear the suffering of her son as, as he dies there in the desert. And she's sobbing again. But again, God intervenes. Because God is a God of justice. And God is a God of compassion. And he sees Hagar. And the Bible says that God heard the boy crying and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him a what? Great nation. So God promises Hagar that Ishmael will be made a great nation. Now, what had God promised Abraham? That he would be a great nation. Now, in Hagar's mind, Ishmael is the firstborn. He has the right to God's blessing. God seems to be con uh, conveying that now and solidifying that because he says, I'm going to make you a great nation. But the angel goes a little further and says this. Now, here's a characteristic of your son. He will be like a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. So what do we have now? Now we've got what we'll call the Abramites and the Ishmaelites populating the same land. Now obviously, there's bad blood between the two groups because of, of the things that have occurred. And they begin to populate. But wait a minute, there's another group already there who was there before Abram got there, they're called the Canaanites. They are descendants of another one of Noah's sons, of Ham. And when they left and got out of the ark, they went to Palestine and settled down. And so now they got the Abramites saying, this is our land. They got the Ishmaelites saying, no, it's our land. It's my land. It's my land. It's my land. They're saying, what are you guys talking about? We were here before either one of you got here. And by the way, if it wasn't for the faithfulness of our forefather Noah, you guys wouldn't be alive today. It's our land. So now we got people competing over the land and competing over the promise of God. But then it goes on. Genesis 13 said, Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything he had, and Lot went with him. Now mind you, God had commanded him to leave his father's household. Just take your immediate family. But now Lot is with him. Who's Lot? Lot is his nephew. It's the son of his dead brother Haran. I mean, Abraham's got to be thinking, well, that's no big deal. I mean, it's just one kid. You know, I didn't bring the whole family. It's no big deal. I brought one, one kid with me, one nephew with me. His dad died. Come on, i got to have some mercy on the kid. I know God told me don't bring anybody. It's no big deal. Well, had he not brought Lot, Lot would be back in the Ur of Chaldees in Iraq, modern-day Iraq, and this story wouldn't have unfolded. wasn't too long before the cattlemen of Lot and the cattlemen and the herders of Abram are fighting each other for grazing land and for water because God had blessed them most so much.
So you remember the story how Abram came to Lot and he said to Lot, he said, I'll tell you what, we can't have this fighting and bickering. This is obviously the land can't support us both. So you choose which direction you're going to go and settle and I'll go the opposite way. You go east, I'll go west. You go north, I'll go south. You choose. Well, we remember the story, Lot's eyes got big and he saw all the beautiful grazing land and watered lands one way and the other way was the desert. And so this very, very uh, uh, loving nephew says, I'm going there, you can have the desert, unk. And so they separate and go ways. Well, you remember the Bible says immediately that Lot pitched his tent towards two cities that were the two most wicked cities possibly in the history of mankind, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. One day God appears to Abram and he says, I'm going to destroy those cities. Problem is, by then Lot had moved into the city. I mean, it's no big deal. Why not move into the city? Take it, well, living out here in a tent with the sheep and stuff. Hey, go in the city. They got, they got hotels and they've got markets and they've got, they've got all these great luxuries. It's no big deal. I'm just going to move my family to the city. Problem is, with that decision, his family became engaged and they embraced the culture and philosophy of that wicked city. And so when the angels of God came to Lot to warn him to get his family out of there, his sons-in-laws laughed at him. He had no more leadership in his family. And so ultimately when he left, he left with his wife and two daughters. And you remember God said, don't look back. And his wife looked back and she turned into a pillar of salt. Well, God did what he promised and he destroyed, he obliterated those two cities off the face of the earth, reduced them to nothing. His daughters, assuming that was their world and that the world had come to an end, talked with each other and said, there's no man left on earth that we can bear children with. So let's do this. Let's make our father drunk, and one night you go in and sleep with him. Then we'll get him drunk again. The next night I'll go in. It's no big deal because there's no other man. I mean, we got to, I mean, surely dad wants his line passed on. So that's exactly what they did. They went and slept with their father. They both got pregnant. And through that union, the Bible tells us that one had a son, and she named him Moab. He's the father of the Moabites today. The other one, uh, daughter had a son named Ben-Ami. He's the father of the Ammonites today. And so now we have two other groups occupying that same land. Who now say, well, Lot was so, so valuable to Abram that he, he defied God and brought him here. So surely we have a claim to the promise of God, to his blessing, to the land. Now, it just gets more complicated as we go. Because Genesis 25, 1 says, Abram took another wife whose name was Keturah. Now remember, Sarah had Isaac when she was 100 years old. So at some point in time, he says, I want a younger model. <laughs> I mean, you got to hand it to Abram. He's over 100 years old now. And he fathers six more children with the Keturah. So now, let's call them the Midianites. And you got yet another group who are directly the descendants, the bloodline of Abraham, now living in the land also. Then the story goes on that Isaac grows up and he gets married to Rebekah. And they have two children. One's name is Esau. He's the firstborn. And the firstborn in that culture is the one that the birthright is passed on to. And the second son that comes out, they, they are not identical twins, but they're fraternal twins. His name is Jacob. But yet God had revealed to Isaac and Rebekah that it was actually going to be Jacob that the birthright was passed on to. And you remember the complicated story. Isaac gets old. He thinks he's about to die. He's lost his sight now. So he calls Esau his manly son. 
and he's gonna, he wants him to go out and do some hunting, bringing some, some uh, food back in and make his meal, and then he's gonna bless him and give him the birthright. Well, Rebecca overhears this, and so Rebecca takes the other son, Jacob, who's not Isaac's favorite son because he's a little bit more of a girly man. Esau is manly, he's hairy, and he smells of the forest and, and, and all that, and Esau is kind of an artsy guy. But anyhow, so they concoct this scheme with Rebecca, where she puts the clothes of Esau on Jacob so he smells like Esau, and then she puts hair on his arm so that he's hairy like Esau. He goes in, Isaac can't see, is fooled, and he passes the blessing on to Jacob instead of Esau, who in Esau's mind, I'm the rightful heir. Now, when Esau learned of this, obviously he was not happy. And he learned that, that Isaac had passed the blessing on to Jacob. And that Isaac also is recorded in Genesis chapter 26, that then he warned Jacob not to marry any Canaanite women. He said, you go back to, to, to Padan Aram and you find somebody from our bloodline, don't mix the blood. Don't be involved in the Canaanites. Now Esau, as young men tend to do, is really mad. He's really upset with Jacob, and he's really upset with Dad for passing that birthright on to someone else. And so in Genesis 26, 6, he says, Esau then realized how displeasing the Canaanite women were to his father Isaac, so I'm getting back at you, Dad. He went to who? Ishmael, and married Mahalath, the sister of Nebaioth, the daughter of Ishmael, the son of Abraham. So he goes and marries himself one of Ishmael's daughters. And now as a bloodline of Abram, or of Abram through his father Isaac, he becomes the father of a group of people called the Edomites. And yet now we have another group that comes from this unholy union between Hagar and Abram. And his Abram's disobedience to God and bringing Lot. Now we have all these people groups and they all feel that they have a legitimate claim to the promise of God and the covenant of God. So they're all living in the same land. There's bad blood between all of them. But I, I know you ask, okay, you have seven people groups now thinking they all own this. But how did little family disagreements Turn into all of this. Okay, I get it. They made some bad decisions. They might have thought at the time, no big deal. But how do we get from there to where we're at today? Well, in order to understand that, you have to understand the subsequent history of how these people related to each other in that land. Let me take a jet tour through it. Remember... Now, they're all living in the land. They're indigenous, separate people. They're not united in any way. They're all repopulating the land. And remember, at a period of time, a great famine hits the world, one of the worst famines of all world history. All the food and the water dry up in, in, in the land of Palestine. And you remember the story how, how now Jacob has 12 sons, and he sends some of his sons down to Egypt to see if Egypt has any food, see if they can bring something back from Egypt. Well, years before, the sons had sold their brother into slavery in Egypt. And you remember the story, how Joseph interpreted a dream of Pharaoh and warned him that seven years of famine were coming, but they were going to be preceded by seven years of plenty. So he says to Pharaoh, pick somebody to save up for the seven years of famine. Pharaoh says, there's no one wiser than you. You're the guy who promotes him to be second in charge of all the kingdom. 
Remember the story how the brothers came back looking for food? They didn't recognize Joseph who had grown up now. He toys with them for a while, but finally he reveals himself. And what happens? He invites the family down to Egypt. And so Jacob and his 12 sons and their families and all of their units, they move down to Egypt where there's plenty of food, where there's plenty of water. And oh, by the way, one of their brothers is second in charge in the whole nation. However, and this is important, they do not invite their brother Ishmaelites and Canaanites and Moabites and Ammonites and Midianites and Edomites to come along. Guys, we're going to Egypt. Good luck here in this famine. They go down to Egypt where there's all kinds of food and all kinds of water and where they have prestige because their brother has become part of the royalty of Egypt. And they leave their extended family members back to maybe perish in this terrible famine. Now, mind you, the Bible records that they're gone from the land for at least 440 years. This isn't a quick trip down and back to get some provisions. They're gone for some 440 years. And during those 440 years, the Ishmaelites and the Canaanites and the Moabites, they resettle the land. They take over all the land. They build cities and they have crops and they have fields. And it is a way of life that it is now their land. And they had to believe that this is the fulfillment of God. He has given it to us. But then what happens? Well, then Moses raises up and leads the children out of Israel. They rebel, so they wander in, in the... the uh, the wilderness for 40 years and then finally Joshua comes up and God opens the way up for Israel to return now to the land that has been occupied for 440 years by their extended family members and understand they didn't just come back and say hey guys we're back uh, we missed you good to be back uh, we're going to go ahead and take over the land they came back with the divine power God parted the Jordan River and the armies of Israel marched across and they made war against the extended family who had settled the land. In fact, the first battle is the battle of Jericho, the battle against that city. And you remember how God had to march around the city for six days one time, and then on the seventh day, march around it seven times, and then yell and scream and blow trumpets, and the walls fell in. And then what happened? Then they proceeded to massacre every man, woman, and child in the city except for the, the family of Rahab, the harlot, who had protected the Israeli reconnaissance spies who had gone in to spy out the land before the battle. Then they proceeded to attack other cities and villages and peoples. And they, God gave them success. And they, through military conquest, suppressed all the other people in the land and built up their kingdom. Now, periodically... They had disobeyed God. And so God punished Israel from time to time. And how he would punish them is he would allow one of these people groups to rise up in power and to afflict Israel. But then Israel would repent and God would give them power and they would suppress the people again. Maybe this time it's the Canaanites. Maybe next time it's the Ishmaelites. Maybe the next time it's the Moabites. And so all this constant bloodshed is going on and on and on. Well, finally, 
Israel had gone too far and God was going to put another judgment on them. So in the year 586 BC, he allows Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, to come in and completely conquer the country. He destroys the city of Jerusalem, destroys the temple of Solomon, and he puts into exiles all these Abramites all over the kingdom. He takes the choice of them, the most handsome and bright and uh, military, and he takes them back to Babylon to indoctrinate them with Babylonian culture. And we remember the stories of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so they're gone from the land again. Well, when they're gone from the land again, there's much rejoicing by the Ishmaelites and the Canaanites and the Moabites and the Ammonites because now they take it all over again. But in 70 years, God forgives Israel and he allows them to come back yet again and he puts his blessing upon them and once again they subdue all the people and subdue all the lands and they are the national power again. Of course, they rebel against God, so periodically, God has to raise one of those folks up to, to punish Israel a little bit, and then Israel repents, and God allows Israel to repress them again. Are you starting to get the picture? Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of violence, of genocide, of bloodshed. Well, finally, Israel went too far. They rejected the Messiah when he came. They crucified him. They spit on him. They mocked him. They cried out to Pilate, let his blood be on us and our children. And our children's children. And God said, okay. Forty years after Jesus was crucified, resurrected, and sent it back into heaven, God unleashed the Roman Empire on him. And the Roman Empire came in in 70 A.D. and conquered them. Once again destroyed the temple so that there wasn't two stones that were left that had been connected. And then the Romans took all those revolt-driven Jews and dispersed them throughout the entire Roman Empire, which at this time is the known world. They're gone again. And what happens? The indigenous people take over the cities, take over the villages, take over the, the lands, take over the grazing patch, take over the water holes. Once again, they are in power. Now understand that at this time, there's still indigenous little people groups. There's no unification. There's no country they're, they're, that, that they all identify with. They are all just doing their own thing. There's still a little bit of bad blood from all them. But the, these pesty Abramites are gone. And since Rome is involved, they should be gone for good now. But then something happens to unify all these people groups. It happens in 610 A.D. A Bedouin by the name of Muhammad alleges, and I stress alleges, that when in a cave for prayer, that the angel Gabriel appeared to him and revealed to him yet a new revelation from God and gave him yet a new revelation called the Quran. Now there is nothing in the subsequent history or the behavior of Muhammad to believe that there was any shred of truth to that. Jesus finished it all. Jesus died on the cross and his last words is, it is finished. 
Islam is born. Now mind you, Muslims claim to be the descendants of who? Ishmael. And they believe that it was Ishmael who this divine covenant of God was passed on. In fact, a major tenet of their his history is that they believe that it was Ishmael that Isaac offered on the sacrifice, not Isaac. Now you remember the angel's prophecy to Hagar, he will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him and he will live in hostility towards all his brothers. So by the year 732 AD, Islam, mind you, not by the persuasion of this alleged angelic visit, not by the persuasion of the truth of, in the Quran, but by military conquest, people were forced to embrace Islam. And they conquered all those people, but now, all of these people are living under the umbrella of Islam. The, Abr the Abramites have been spread through the known world. They're gone. They're out of our hair. And understand, it remained that way, except for some skirmishes during the Crusades. They remained in control of that land now for 1,875 years. They run the cities. They control the land. And they are in control of all of the promised land, believing that the fulfillment has come true. Until a very significant historical event occurs. It's called World War II and the Holocaust. When the Nazi fanatics, the Nazi anti-Semites, the Nazi Jew-haters exterminated between five and six million Jewish men, women, and children. Now, when this became internationally known, the hearts of the Western world had compassion on the Jewish people. And they said, we need to ensure that this can never happen again to these people. And so the international community decided that it was time that the Jews go back to their homeland, Palestine. And so in 1948, some 1875 years after they were dispersed by the Roman Empire, we're back. And mind you, the local people did not invite them back and say, yeah, you come on back. We'll give you your land back. It was imposed on them. Well, it wasn't long when Israel was back until those nations decided they're not going to tolerate it. And so they waged war against Israel with the, the idea of eradicating Israel and throwing them out of the land, their land, the land that they had earned through blood and years of struggle with these Jews. Of course, God, again, kept his promise to Abram. And although outnumbered and out-tanked and, and outgunned and, and every other thing, God blessed Israel, and in six days they were able to end that war. 
and Israel wins. They're victorious. And now Israel is in control of the land. And Israel is control of the political equation. And Israel is the dominant force again. Osama bin Laden said the enmity between us and the Jews goes far back in time and it's deep-rooted. See, we Westerners say, what, what is wrong with these people? But we don't get it. We're not part of the culture. We're not part of the history of the turning over back and forth of this land over thousands of years and the bloodshed and the genocide that occurred between them. But they are aware of it. They haven't forgot it. He said, it goes back far in history and it is very deep-rooted. There is no question that war between us is inevitable. Yasser Arafat said, peace for us means the destruction of Israel. In the Islamic Jihad, Ben Gaynor says, the Jews have to return to the countries from which they came. We shall not accede to a Jewish state on our land. Even if it's one village, we're not going to tolerate it. It's our land. It's our blessing. Now this hatred and this violence has spread out to other countries depending on which side those countries align themselves with. Again, Bin Laden said, we know at least one reason behind the participation of the Western forces, and that is, now listen, this is important, to support the Jewish and Zionist plans for what? Expansion of what is called what? The Great Israel. What is the Great Israel? It's the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. From the river in Egypt, which is the what? The Nile. To the great river Euphrates. The great Israel, expansion, claiming the entire promised land. And today, that would include countries like Saudi Arabia, and Jordan, and Iraq, and Syria, and Lebanon, and even parts of Iran. And the response, again, Ben Gaynor, the war will continue until Israel ceases to exist, and the last Jew is eliminated from the world. Israel is entirely evil and must be wiped off the face of the earth. Now, I don't agree with their tactics, but I understand the emotion of this. I understand their perspective. But I also understand God's promise and who he gave it to and what God's going to do. And I believe... God, when he said, I will bless those who bless them and curse them that curse them. And one of the reasons the United States has had God's favor is because we've blessed them. It's no big deal. Sarah said, it's no big deal. I'm old. I can't have children anymore. I'll take this young maid and I'll take my husband and we can start a family at least through her. No big deal. I know he doesn't love her. Abraham, it's no big deal. It's consensual. My wife knows about it and I'm not cheating on her. It's no big deal. I know God told me not to take any other family members with me. It's no big deal. I only got one nephew. I took one nephew. That's it. Only one. It's no big deal. It's no big deal. I got to keep peace in the house. If it means sacrificing just one slave woman and her son, it's no big deal. Yes, it is a big deal.
because Burt was right. And those decisions not only impacted those individuals in their day, but impacted generations to come and ultimately has impacted the moral destiny of the entire planet. So when that little voice visits you and me, it says, it's no big deal. Go ahead, it's no big deal. Who's it really going to hurt? It's no big deal. Go ahead and get the divorce. It's no big deal. Go ahead and cheat on, on that contract. It's no big deal. Now, honestly, the likelihood of any decision that you and I making having the impact that Abram and his family had on the moral destiny of the world is almost non-existent. Because there's forces much greater than mankind at, at play in that. But listen, yes, it is a big deal. Yes, it does matter what decision we make. Yes, it does matter what culture we embrace. Yes, it does matter how we treat our spouses. Yes, it does matter how we interact with our children. Yes, it does matter the mo- how we model Christianity in front of our co-workers. Yes, it does matter that we use integrity in the workplace. Yes, it does matter. Why? Because our decisions will not only impact us in that moment, but they have the potential to impact generations to come. And even ultimately impact the moral destiny of the world. Listen, if Christianity surrenders, who's going to take over? Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by Him. And that's a big deal. And we better never forget it. Let's bow our heads for a moment. It's no big deal. How many times has that voice whispered in your ear? How many times has it whispered in your conscience? It's no big deal. Go ahead. I mean, who's it really going to hurt? One little isolated incident. This one little unimportant relationship. It's no big deal. The book of Titus, chapter 3, verse 8 says, This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things, so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. God has called us to live a higher life. God has called us to a higher standard as His sons and daughters. And God says that we need to devote ourselves in every decision we make, in every relationship we enter into. We need to devote ourselves to ensuring that the set of dominoes that we send off because of our existence are dominoes that will lead towards health and healing and love and guidance and faithfulness and integrity. Because it's not just going to impact us. It's going to impact generations to come and the ultimate moral destiny of the world. Father, help us to get it. Help us to see through this the function of this one family who made life decisions that at the time just seemed like no big deal. But yet, God, may we understand how these simple, isolated 
responses and decisions can converge together and create chaos that is unimaginable. God, help us to understand that that those same kind of decisions that we think are no big deal are big deals to you. For you are using us for your glory, your honor, and to impact this world and people in it in a positive way. God, help us to rise up in our hearts right now. Help us to be proud of that of that relationship we have to you and help us to be determined to be your people to do what's right to make this world a better place for your glory and for the excellence of everyone else in Jesus name we pray amen thanks for listening here at Florida Bible Church we believe the first the most important step in life's journey is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ so the question is How about you? If you haven't started this relationship, you can use this model prayer. Jesus, I do want to begin a relationship with you. I know that I have sinned against you and cannot save myself. So right now, I ask for your forgiveness of all my sins, and I accept you as my personal Savior, believing that you die on the cross and pay for all my sins. Forgive me now, and please give to me your precious gift of eternal life. Amen. You can find this prayer along with more detailed information on our website at www.floridabible.org. Just click the beginning a relationship with Jesus button. There you will also learn more about us and find the next steps for a Christ follower. Thanks again for listening to Living Life with Purpose.